0: Hello, I'm Sam Amon, your non-binary host, and this is the special episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today, in honor of Workers' Day and the thousands of workers all across the United States striking for their rights and livelihoods, we'll be discussing the Dublin Lockout of 1913. day or also known as may day today's making history is all about worker rights unions and the thousands of workers currently on strike across the united states some of the biggest examples of these strikers are of course the approximately 40 starbucks stores across the country who have unionized and the staten island amazon warehouses who are unionizing but there are also hundreds of other companies go on strike that need our support if you're in the chicago area grad students at university of illinois chicago are fighting for a living wage clear anti-bullying and anti-sexual harassment language in their contracts, and protection from arbitrary firing. The faculty of University of Illinois Springfield are going on strike as well, as early as May 2nd, demanding salaries that keep up with the cost of living. The best way to support their cause is to lift up their voices and contact their leaders to see what they need in terms of supplies. I'd also recommend subscribing to Jonah Furman's newsletter. He publishes a weekly roundup of workers fighting for their rights. I'd also recommend you follow Jonah Furman and Joshua Potash on Twitter. We're in a very exciting moment for labor and worker rights, but they need all the support we can give, so find a local strike near you and see how you can help. But also look at your own workplace and determine if there's something you can do to improve workers' lives. As exciting as these strikes are, it honestly never should have come to this. If companies treated their workers right in the first place, They could spend more time focused on helping others, helping their families, growing their skills, and living their lives as they wanted instead of fighting for the bare minimum our companies owe us workers. If you or someone you know is considering unionizing, the website Emergency Workplace Organizing is a great resource. They are dedicated to helping workers fight for their rights by providing digital resources as well as connecting people with experienced strikers, union organizers, and activists. There's also the 2022 Labor Notes Conference in Chicago which promises to be a great gathering of union members, officers, and other labor activists. I believe they're meeting in June or July of this year. There is a fee to register for the conference, but if you can afford it, it should be an effective way to meet other organizers. We'll provide links to all of these resources in our description. And now, onto to the 1913 lockout. Since it's Workers' Day, also known as May Day, and the United States is facing a revolution in worker rights, I thought it'd be fun to take a minor break from Central Asia I returned to Ireland to discuss how Jim Larkin, James Connolly, and the Irish Transportation and General Workers Union, the ITGWU, led one of Ireland's largest strikes, fundamentally changing labor, not only in Ireland, but around the world. Part 1. Working and living conditions in Ireland prior to 1914. The Ireland of the early 1900s was an Ireland in the midst of great upheaval and change. If we think back to our first episode on Easter Rising... There were a lot of organizations and movements agitating for various causes, such as women's rights, nationalism, home rule, Gaelic culture revival, and worker rights. On top of all of that, the living and working conditions for many people in Ireland were abysmal, pouring fuel to the growing flame that would take over Ireland for the next decade. Lack of work for unstilled workers, limited access to trade unions, and employment being given on a daily and arbitrary basis trapped many Irish workers in poverty. Not only was access to work unpredictable, but even if someone was lucky enough to have a job, they would be subjected to bogus fines, constant surveillance, and arbitrary firings, often for being quote-unquote lazy, wasting time, or being accused of being drunk or fighting while on the job. When workers tried to join unions, employers would blacklist them, preventing them from finding work in the city, driving them into extreme poverty, or forcing them to move to another city where maybe they could find work. Living conditions were hardly any better than the working conditions, with many workers crowded into tenement buildings rife with disease. It is said that 835 people lived in 15 houses on Henrietta Street. This led to poor hygiene and cramped living conditions, contributing to a high rate of disease amongst the tenement population. Tuberculosis was the most common disease, and according to a 1903 study by Dr. John Lumsden, there were 50% more tuberculosis deaths in Ireland than in England or Scotland. The infant mortality rate was also higher than England, with an estimated 142 deaths per 1,000 births. Ironically, there were 70,000 trade unionists in Ireland, but three-fourths of them were in in British-based unions. This meant they were reliant on British interests when it came to support for strikes and walkouts. Additionally, since many of Ireland's workforce was considered unskilled, they undercut the power of the strike since most employers considered them easy to replace. You couldn't pressure an employer to cave if he wasn't scared about losing his employees. So the question for Irish trade unionists was how to break the employers back with the resources they had on hand. Enter Jim Larkin and James Connolly. Part 2. Jim Larkin and James Connolly Jim Larkin is a giant in Irish history. Considered to be a visionary, charismatic leader as well as an ed- an egotistical pain in the ass, Larkin was a dynamic force that changed labor history, not only in Ireland but around the world. Larkin was born in Birmingham to Irish immigrants and became a docker and a union organizer in Liverpool. He was also a syndicalist, a version of socialism who believed that the only way to overthrow capitalism was by uniting all workers in one big union and relying on mass strikes. Larkin was sent to Belfast to organize the National Union of Dock Laborers, the NUDL. While there, he led a strike of dock and transport workers and first used the tactic of the sympathetic strike. A sympathetic strike is when workers, not directly involved in the dispute, go on strike and support their fellow workers. His strike was somewhat successful, catching the attention of Irish workers, but upset British labor organizers, and so he was transferred to Dublin. I'm sure that seemed like a good idea at the time, but boy would they regret that decision. As soon as Larkin got to Ireland, he set about organizing unstilled workers in Dublin, alarming the NUDL, who weren't ready to confront the powerful Dublin employers. They suspended Larkin from the NUDL, and he, along with assistance from James Connolly, formed the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, the ITGWU, which exists today as the Services, Industrial, Professional, and Technical Union, the SIPTU. Connolly, who we talked about in great depth in our Easter Rising episode, Edinburgh-born activist who joined the British Army at the age of 14. His experience with British imperialism radicalized him, and he deserted to join the socialist cause. He created the Irish Socialist Republican Party, protested the Boer War, and wrote a book about the history of labor before meeting Larkin and creating the ITGWU. Connolly, who was a nationalist, himself saw the cause of a free Ireland tied to the liberation of all workers. He once explained that, quote, There are no real nationalists in Ireland outside of the Irish labor movement. Others merely reject one part or other of the British conquest. The labor movement alone rejects it in its entirety and sets itself to the reconquest of Ireland. The ITGWU was the first Irish trade union that catered to both stilled and unstilled workers and soon spread from Dublin to other Irish cities. Larkin believed in establishing trade unions to bring about a socialist revolution and that the general strike was the workers' most powerful tool. He led several strikes from 1908 to 1910 with few successes, but he perfected the use of the sympathetic strike and boycotting, which actually originated in Ireland under Parnell's leadership during the land wars. Larkin began to see victories in 1911, using sympathetic strikes to increase the wage rate for unstilled Dublin workers by 20-25%, to 25%, and creating a culture where businesses who didn't negotiate could expect trouble from workers of all industries. Larkin convinced hundreds of workers that the worst thing they could do was cross the picket line, and quote, an injury to one is an injury to all. With these victories under his belt, he felt it was a perfect time to swell the ranks of the ITGWU. Between 1911 to 1913, the IT. GWU membership rose from 4,000 to 10,000 people, its backbone being the city's carters and dockers. Bid business was terrified. Part 3. The Lockout On August 26, 1913, the Dublin tram car drivers and conductors pinned their ITGWU pins on their labels and abandoned their trams, going on strike. Forty minutes later, Murphy's scabs got the trams running again. It wasn't an auspicious beginning for Larkin and the Strikers, but it would turn into a seven-month battle between the workers and businesses of Dublin. Part 3A. William Martin Murphy and his co-conspirators. The ITGWU's biggest opponent was William Martin Murphy, the chairman of the Dublin United Tramways Company, major shareholder of the B&I line, and owner of Clary's Department and Imperial Hotel. He also controlled the Irish Independent, Evening Herald, and Irish Catholic Newspapers. He was an Irish native who felt he was defending the Catholic middle-class way of life against the socialist terror espoused by Larkin. He claimed to give his workers fair wages, yet many of his employees were poorly treated, given one day off in ten days, and forced to work up to 17 hours a day. His tramway workers were paid less than their counterparts in Belfast and Liverpool and suffered several several fines, could be placed in probationary periods for six years, and constantly harassed and haunted by a series of informers. Murphy claimed he supported train unions in principle, but he despised the ITGWU because Larkin was a dangerous revolutionary. Murphy called a meeting of 300 employees in July 1913, and they agreed that the ITGWU could not be allowed to unionize the Dublin workforce. Starting in August 1913, he fired 400 workers he suspected of having ITGWU membership. Murphy and 400 of Dublin's employers agreed to lock out any employee who refused to sign an oath to never join the the ITGWU. It should be noticed that Guinness, the largest employer in Dublin, refused to lock out its workforce. It also refused to officially join Murphy's group, but donated money to smaller, struggling businesses and forbade its workers from participating in sympathetic strikes. It fired the six employees who did, but looked the other way when 400 of its staff joined the ITGWU. Larkin tried to get the statesmen rehired, but without success. Many businesses in Dublin were hurt by the strike, and in October 1913, the Shipping Federation in England interceded. They financially supported 600 strikebreakers in Dublin to keep the ports open, sent sit- ships to the Dublin ports to protect trade, and spent £10,000 to keep several smaller Dublin businesses afloat. 3B, Bloody Sunday Larkin was arrested for sedition on August 28th and was out on bail the next day. He and Connolly planned a demonstration on what is now O'Connell Street, but was Sackville Street at the time, for August 31st. The demonstration was banned. On the 29th, Larkin burned the proclamation banning the demonstration and said, People make kings and cannot make them. I am a rebel and the son of a rebel. I recognize no law but the people's law. I will be in Sackville Street on Sunday, next, dead or alive, and if I am dead, I hope you will carry me there. On August 30th, the police published another warrant for his arrest, but Larkin wasn't dissuaded from speaking on the 31st. Casimir and Konstantin Markievich disguised Larkin in Casimir's frock coat and trousers, stage makeup, and beard. He was smuggled into Murphy's own Imperial Hotel by Nellie Gifford, sister-in-law of the Thomas Madonna, Easter Rising fame. From the balcony of the hotel, he called to the crowd, claiming that he had kept his promise before he was arrested again. He would be released a week later. The police attacked the gathered workers, killing two workers and injuring 400 to 600 more. Constance was caught in the violence, and her husband, Kashmir, published his own account in the, f- in the newspaper Freeman's Journal. Quote, there was no sign of excitement, no attempt at rescue, and no attempt at a breach of the peace when a savage and cruel order for a baton charge, unprecedented in such circumstances in any privileged country, was given to the police. It was equaled, perhaps, by the Bloody Sunday events in St. Petersburg. Scores of well-fed metropolitan policemen pursued a handful of men, women, and children running for their lives before them. I saw many batoned people lying on the ground, senseless and bleeding. When the police had finished their bloodthirsty pursuit, they returned down the street, batoning the terror-stricken passerby who had taken refuge in the doorways. It was indeed a bloody Sunday for Ireland. This being known as the first of many bloody Sundays in the 20th century Irish history. The violence against the strikers grew... As the strike wore on, with Alice Brady shot dead while bringing home a food parcel and Michael Byrne, an ITGWU official, tortured to death in a prison cell. On September 2nd, tenement buildings collapsed on Church Street, killing seven people including three children and an ITGWU member. This fanned the anger of the workers. On the 7th, the TUC in Dublin organized a mass rally to assert the rights of workers and attempted to negotiate with businesses. It failed. Within a few weeks, 15,000 workers were locked out and dependent on the ITGWU for food. There were local efforts to support the Strikers. The local mayor raised 10,000 pounds, with a majority of it coming from two Catholic bishops. The Society of St. Vincent de Paul tried to fill in the gaps, although there is no public record of their donations. Aid was distributed mostly through the Catholic Church, although various Protestant churches also tried to help. Constance Markievich was often seen preparing food for the poor, while other members of the ITGWU tried to alleviate the strikers' suffering the best they could. And yet they couldn't make something out of nothing, and so Larkin turned to the Trade Union Congress, the TUC, in Britain. The TUC sent £106,000 in financial aid and hundreds of shipments of food. The first food shipment arrived on September 29th and and contained 60,000 family boxes. While the admissions to Dublin workhouses in 1913 were lower than the preceding year, the mortality rate dramatically rose during the lockout, especially for children. This strike was going to cost the strikers everything. The plight of the children of strikers was appalling, and Madame Dora Montefiore tried to help by creating the the quote-unquote kiddies scheme. This plan, which only lasted from October 18th to the 29th, paired starving children with British families until the workers won their battle with Murphy and the others. This predictably drew the ire of the Catholic Church and nationalists who feared the children would lose their faith, their identity, and refuse to leave British life for life in Dublin. Yet those who denounced the plan did little to help the children in need. Larkin was arrested again on October 27th, and Connolly took his place as leader. To encourage the strikers, a statement from Larkin from prison was published in the Irish Worker, although Connolly most likely wrote it. In this statement, Larkin slash Connolly argued. This great fight of ours is not simply a question of shorter hours or better wages. It is a great fight for human dignity, for the liberty of action, liberty to live as human beings should live. Larkin was released on November 13th. Part 3C, The Irish Citizen Army Murphy relied on the police and British military to to act as strikebreakers. As early as September 22nd, the police were called in to protect coal deliveries. When that failed to stop the lockout, the Shipping Federation sent 600 strikebreakers on November 6th. These men were protected by the Dublin Metropolitan Police. Approximately 40,000 ITGWU members were brought to court on several different charges and many were imprisoned. Some, like Frank Moss, a union organizer who was stationed in swords, even went on hunger strike to, prote- to protest the police's cruelty. The strikebreakers were involved in several suitings that ended in severe injuries or death, but were never disciplined for excessive force. While attempting tempting to think of the strikebreakers as purely British, there were several Irishmen amongst their ranks. Larkin contested every prosecution of his union members in court, but also realized that they needed a more proactive solution if he wanted to protect his people. So he, along with James Connolly and ex-British Army Captain Jack White, founded the Irish Citizen Army on November 25, 1913. Larkin described it as a, quote, New army of the people, so that labor may be able to utilize that great physical power which it possesses to prevent its elementary rights being taken away. They were armed with hurley sticks and bats, and were used primarily to defend the striking workers. The creation of a citizen army wasn't unusual for labor and socialist groups at the time, and given the level of violence the strikers were facing on a daily basis, the ICA was deemed vital for the survival of the strike. Unfortunately, the first time the ICA saw action, they fled along with the strikers they were supposed to protect. Maybe this is why Connolly decided to take a more militant approach towards the organization. He and his deputy, Michael Malin turned the ICA into a more formal military organization with a focus on drilling, marching, and uniforms. The army consisted of mostly unstilled workers who were no more radical than the average Irish person joining the volunteers. But between 1914 and 1916, Connolly and many of the ICA members would be radicalized by the horrors of the World War and the inability of Irish politicians like Redmond, to do more than cave to England's demands for more men and supplies, while ignoring Ireland's desire for home rule. This radicalization, combined with its commitment to a military- militant response, would make the Irish citizen army a formidable foe during Easter Rising. The level of violence converted some British artists and activists to the striker's cause. George Russell wrote to the quote-unquote the masters of Dublin that, quote, you may succeed in your policy and ensure your damnation by your victory. Even some nationalists, such as Patrick Pierce, grew sympathetic to the strikers' cause. After Bloody Sunday, Pierce wrote quote, An employer who accepts the aid of foreign bayonets to enforce a lockout of his workmen and accuses the workmen of national der- dereliction because they accept foreign alms for their starving wives and children is a matter for a play by Singe. I actually visited Michael Malin's house in Inchicore, Dublin. It's a small building that was being renovated when I was there, but there's a small plaque that's rather nice, uh, highlighting it as a headquarters for the Irish citizen army. If you go on the Richmond Barretts tour, you'll pass it, and not only will you learn about the Barretts' role in Easter Rising, you'll also get a bit of poetry and song and a brief history of Irish labor, including the ICA and the lockout, so I highly recommend it. Part 3D, the lackluster support of nationalists and troubles... With British trade unions. The lockout lasted for seven months, and during that time, Larkin alternated between encouraging his strikers and attacking the TUC and other British trade unions for not supporting their Irish brethren. He would travel to Britain after his release on November 13th and attended several meetings with British trade unions in December. Instead of building relationships, he alienated many of his British counterparts by arguing that they weren't doing enough to help the Dublin workers. He once said to a group of members of the TUC, quote, "Comrades in the British labour movement, your leaders suggest that you are prepared to back up your sympathy only in word and money value, but not in deeds." If that was correct, one might feel dispirited. Even though the TUC sent funds and food, Larkin wanted their workers to go on sympathetic strikes and boycott materials from Dub- arriving from Dublin. Larkin truly believed this would have forced Murphy to settle the strike on the workers' terms. There are two things to consider here. First, we must acknowledge, even if maybe Larkin would not want to, that the British provided an astonishing amount of support financially and via the food shipments. And there actually were a couple of unsanctioned sympathetic strikes amongst the British railway workers. However, as as Larkin would argue, quote, We say all your money is useful, but money never won a strike. Money can't win a strike. Discipline, solidarity, knowledge of the position and the strength to carry out your will, these are the things. Larkin approached union work very differently from many other trade unionists. It's one of the reasons the NUDL sent him to Dublin in the first place. He was far more militant than his counterparts, believing in the power of mass strikes led by a single trade union. Additionally, he was on the ground, fighting for workers' rights, and seeing the families you know, starve and struggle to survive as they were locked out of their places of employment, while the British trade unionists were risking far less than Larkin and the Dublin workers. He had also been in and out of jail multiple times, he was hunted by the police, he was responsible for thousands of people's lives. It is understandable that Larkin would find the British excuses and lack of commitment frustrating. Larkin also had doubts about the commitment of trade union leaders in Britain, aware that there had been conflict between the leaders and workers during Britain's own strikes. If the British labor leaders would try to temper the militant nature of their own members, why would they support Dublin's workers? He believed that the leaders would only act if they were forced to by external actors and from pressure within its own rights. The reality of course is far more complicated. There seems to have been three reasons the TUC didn't call for sympathetic strikes. One, the British trade unions had been an almost constant strike between 1909 and 1912, leaving them exhausted. The British trade union got into an argument with their own workers during their own strikes about how mil- how militant they should be, or even the usefulness of sympathetic strikes. They weren't going to risk it. For Dublin workers, two, the trade union leaders were doubtful about how successful a British strike would be. It was one thing to get workers to risk their livelihoods for their own benefit, but to risk everything for Ireland that seemed less likely less than likely to work. three, there was also a growing unease about Larkin and his methods, and they may have feared him as much as they res- hated and respected him. In the end, their own reluctance combined with Larkin's increasingly bellicose nature led the TUC to holding a special conference where they formally refused to call a nationwide strike, and they disowned Larkin. When Larkin wasn't alienating his own unionists, he was alienating the rising nationalists and home rulers. The lockout was occurring during the middle of the home rule crisis, and many nationalists felt that Larkin was jeopardizing any chance home rule had at passing, yet they could not ignore the violence and an Irish party MP, Richard McGee, wrote to John Dillon, It will be a serious mistake for an entire Irish party to remain silent, as if it approved of the devilish work of the police. The trade unions of Britain are stirred to the deepest indignation. I know nothing that will cause more injury than for those unions to think that we, the Nationalist Party, are indifferent to the conflicts of William Martin Murphy and his victims. Dillon, who was holding the line while Redmond campaigned in the North, decided that the best policy for the IPP was to remain silent about the lockout. For the Nationalists, the Strikers were too reliant on England. Helena Mulaney, who would write that there was a quote-unquote unwholesome endlessness of Larkin and the strike. Part 4. End of the Strike Despite the fears of a Larkinite sweep of the elections, only one out of ten of Larkin's candidates won a seat. This combined with the TUC's rejection and the specter of starvation forced Larkin to gather his Strikers at Crondon Park on January 8, 1914 and call off the strike. Murphy refused to compromise and for a moment won a great victory. Most of the Dublin workers who went on strike were on the brink of starvation and forced to renounce their ITGWU membership and return to work. Those who could not return to their former jobs joined the British Army and saw combat in World War I. Larkin went to America to raise funds and support for the ITGWU and to recover from a strike that took everything out of him. Although while in America, he was arrested for being a communist and spent time in Sing Sing before being parted and deported back to Ireland in 1923, so not sure how much rest he got while he was there. Connolly and many members of the Irish Citizen Army, including Michael Malin, would die in Easter Rising, and those who survived worked with the IRA during the Irish War of Independence. The ITGWU fell apart after Connolly's death until William O'Brien, Thomas Foran, and T.D. Daly resurrected it. By 1919, the ITGWU's membership was approximately 120,000 people, with 350 branches all over Ireland. Larkin may have failed to achieve better pay and condition for workers, but it is considered today to be a watershed moment in Irish labour history. He organized a large subset of unstilled workers into a union, broke the idea that the Irish unions were tied to the British unions, sparked the creation of the Irish Citizen Army, which would have its own huge role to play in Irish history, created the ITGWU, which others used to continue the fight for Irish worker rights, and terrified Irish employers from never again trying to break the Irish workers like Murphy did. Like the Irish women's rights campaign going on at the same time, the lockout proved not only to Irish employers, but to the Irish themselves, that they were strong when they stood together. It brought together activists and intellectuals that otherwise would never have met, and the relations built during the lockout would bear fruit going into 1914 and beyond. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and our website, www.samswarroom.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, and our website, www.samswarroom.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at AOA Warfare. Please join our Patreon to support our research and future projects. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.